So, okay, so we have, um, we've gotten to the, the recommendations there. We'll see that. Um, Nathan, you might grab one each of these and, and pass them back there. That way we can have all those. Um, you'll also, so go to letter D, and we get to our class assignments. Now, here, is, here are some of the things that you'll be doing for the class. Uh, I want to go over this because it's going to be important stuff for you as you kind of plan out your schedule for the next uh, seven weeks. Um, number one there, uh, preach. You will we'll preach a sermon at about a 20-minute, 15 to 20-minute length, so we're not talking like a 45-minute deal, but 15 to 20 minutes still is a pretty good amount of time uh, to stand up here and stand before all of us. We will all be your judges, so think of like American Idol or something, but with sermons. And uh, so we will, there'll be some forms. I'll be walking through the whole class in terms, especially the classes um, three, four, and five. Uh, we'll be digging into a lot of the details uh, of that. Uh, but just kind of get yourself prepared. Start thinking now. I'm not assigning you a passage. You kind of can choose. If it, you can choose a lesson you've done before or maybe you've taught something before, that's fine too. Um, but it is going to be more on the sermon side of things. In other words, it's not going to be a dialogue or, or a Q&A necessarily. Just, it's more of a, a lecture that you'll be given, and we'll talk about those differences in a moment. Uh, number two, evaluate student sermons. Each of us will be doing that. I'll give you a worksheet, and we'll all, and again, I know it'll be nerve-wracking for you because, you know, you stand up here, and you preach, and we're, we're taking notes, and you're wondering, like, well, was that a bad point, or was, that, was I off? We're all going to be doing it, and so we're just trying to help each other. It's the whole point, all right? The point is to help each other, and, uh, and we'll, we'll do that together, okay? Uh, number three, you'll see some of the homework assignments. So here's what they are. Uh, what I've done is I've grabbed a couple of guys that I, I've really enjoyed reading. Um, these are all, well, they're all dead guys. Um, and, uh, but, but I want you to read them with observations in mind. So I gave you the paper because I want you to kind of go through, and you'll see the, the bold part there. Um, you'll see the, the, the sermon text kind of as you see the outlines. You kind of draw boxes around it or circle it, however you want to do it. Uh, the highlighter points is kind of getting to... Um, all the, the graphic words, illustrations, metaphors. So when you get someone like, hi Daniel, uh, just grab a copy of each of these up front right here. Um, so as you go through and you grab, um, as you see uh, illustrations, metaphors, similes, etc. Like Edwards, for example, is going to have a lot of that. And so you're going to be doing a lot of highlighting like, oh, the spider web and a lot of, of that. <coughs> Part of these assignments, a lot of these are more delivery ideas, and trying to, I learned a lot from just reading, listening to, watching. Uh, these are great, just kind of, I'm not so much interested in the content per se of these, though they're great content sermons. I just want you to see how they, how they were different, how they presented things uh, to get ideas. So you see that for um, Edwards there, number three, and then Spurgeon number four, and then Ryle number five. And so I've given you a copy of each of those. They'll be assigned, and we'll look at in a second, in different weeks. Um, you'll also there, a circle and red pen, uh, second person address. you see how they preach in using the second person as important. And then the blue pen, it doesn't have to be red or blue. I just wanted it to be a different color. So if you've got, like, you really like pink, you can go for it. It's totally fine. Um, but the blue, I want you to circle all the question marks. Because one of the powerful methods of preaching is, is asking the rhetorical question, getting people to think, getting people to evaluate. And guys like Ryle, for example, is phenomenal at that. He's great at asking questions, uh, very convicting questions that he asks. And so, so those will be assigned different weeks for you to kind of just thumb through. I want to give you it all now, so in case your schedules are maybe you got a week that's really light and you got a week that's really heavy, and you can kind of balance that out on your own over the next seven weeks and what works. But we'll have them, if you flip over to, um, to your 
um, schedule on, well, I'll get that in a second. Let's finish on page six. Uh, you'll see the number six there is review three modern expository preachers. And I'll talk about what expository preaching is in a moment. But these are, I gave some recommendations of some guys that, that, are, that are pretty good at this. Um, finding any three sermons, as long as it's on the same text. And the reason I want you to do that, I want you to listen to them. Three different guys preach the same passage. I want you to hear how different it is. I want you to hear different ways they approach it and all of that. Because you just really learn a lot about... Um, there's different ways to skin a cat, I guess. Is that correct, Jared? Is that a, a correct... More than one way to skin a cat. Okay. Um, as we'll talk about later, there's one meaning, but there's multiple applications. There's multiple ways of crafting and addressing. Your audience does make a difference on how you address certain subjects or certain texts. And so um, that's kind of up to your discretion to kind of find those three and, and uh, find similar passages. Um, seven and eight are going to be uh, reviewing kind of how Jesus taught. Uh, one is just the parables and how he used word pictures and how he got people's understanding of their current context or environment and used that to teach truth and uh, was observing that and then obviously the Sermon on the Mount and kind of looking for the same things you did with the others. So on page seven, now that'll give us our schedule. So on the schedule, um, you'll have there, you see how I've kind of uh, broken those up. So today's class is on, I said, the conviction of scripture. We'll kind of talk about what it is. Um, again, I won't be able to get through the whole thing, uh, but I'll, I will give you all the notes online for that. Um, class two next week, we'll look at canonicity, kind of where the Bible came from. So we just have uh, that. So these two classes will kind of roll together. We will start the class off by reviewing Jonathan Edwards. And so uh, that is the one if you have, uh, want you to do first, uh, kind of, uh, and just, as we come to class, just kind of just observations, that's all. Just things you saw um, uh, from your time of kind of reading through that and marking it up. And then uh, the next week will be the study of Scripture. We'll, have, we'll look at Spurgeon's sermon for that. Uh, the presentation uh, in class four. Uh, we'll look at Ryle's. Uh, class five, you'll see there, will be another uh, on presentation. And we'll look at modern preachers. And then class six and seven will be our labs. Um, I'll be dividing you up uh, in terms of, uh, of, of getting that. I'll do that on the hub. I'll kind of divide up the class in half, and you'll have uh, half of you will go in class six, half of you in class seven, and then um, we'll get feedback after each time as well. You okay. can go straight through from the 14th, seven consecutive weeks, right? No, actually, seven. thank you. So, so class one is on January 14th, obviously. Class two is on January 21st. Class three is on January 28th. So 14, 21, 28. And then class four now, we're skipping. We're going to February 11th. And then class five, the, the February 18th. Class six, February 25th. And then class seven, March 4th. So we just skipped that one February 4th date. We won't be having it. Super Bowl Sunday. A lot of people have, have people over. It's a good opportunity to reach out to neighbors, etc. So we want to kind of leave that opportunity open. All right? So that's that's the one, okay, one, one break we'll have there. Okay? Yes? The... Uh... Yeah, it's pretty much all in the morning. There will be some things going on with students. Student ministries will have some missions conference things going on. Uh, and so the, they'll be, uh, the Ignited Blaze will be doing some things, as well as I think the Vine will be doing some things as well with missionaries helping out in those different ways. So, But we'll still be having classes during the time. All right. Any other questions on on those materials? Well, as you, as you read through those, have any questions, uh, let me know. And uh, we can we can go from there. All right? It'll be fun, I promise. (laughs) 
Okay, let me pray for us and we'll kind of jump in for tonight. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about uh, your scriptures and about how to present them, teach them, um, apply them to people and to our own lives. I pray that you would guide us and lead us and make us better uh, teachers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Yes, go for it. That's okay. It does. It's uh, it's it's in there. It says required reading. There's a lot of recommended readings. There's one required. Uh, Brian Chapel. Uh, there you go. We got it back in the back there. There's a copy of it right there. Christ's preaching by Brian Chapel. Um, and just if you didn't sign up, just sign up on the hub when you get a chance, just so I can get you in. So make sure you get all the updates, and then get you all the all the material and stuff too. All right. Yep. I think everybody should have a copy of everything at this point. All right, um, so introduction. I, I love it. I'm just going to read just what Piper said here. You see in your notes on page 8. He said, people are starving for the greatness of God, uh, but most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far more popular prescriptions on the market, but the benefit of any remedy is brief and shallow. Preaching that does not have the aroma of God's greatness may entertain for a season, but it will not touch the hidden cry of the soul. <clears throat> the, of the soul show me... Thy glory, right? So this is this is what we were made for. We were created to to bask in the glory of God. To understand that, particularly when we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about God's God's grace um, and God's greatness. Those are kind of the G's I kind of go with. When we talk about the glory of God. We're talking about God's greatness and God's grace. Who He is, is His greatness, His grace is Him toward us, right? And so those are the things we want to highlight when we're when we're preaching. Our goal is to make that known. To people, because that is their biggest need, and a lot of times they just want to know, like, give me something to do, give me the, give me the five steps I need to do, and we need to be applicable, and we'll talk about application. But the primary need that most people won't won't prescribe for themselves is God's greatness and God's grace that they need to hear, because uh, that's going to fuel everything else and motivate everything else later. All right. So as we get to um, one of the things I wanted to, to kind of start off with is just answering the question. Now, have you, anybody never heard the word expository? Is that a new word for you? That may be a new word for you. Anybody want to take a stab at what it means? What is expository preaching as opposed to just preaching? Exposed. Okay. Exposed. Okay, yeah. Spread something out. Yep. Okay, laid open. Yep. Okay, good. Explaining the text the way it was meant. Right, the way it was meant to be, uh, be conveyed, yeah. Right, and you just use the word there, exegesis. What is that? You know what that means? What is exegesis? Uh, maybe a new word too. Drawing from scripture, what's drawing from scripture, the application as opposed to reading our application. Right, and so a lot of times we have, so we have like in, um, there's a couple of words. So I, I don't, I'm not, I think I saw this right. Starts so exegesis, and then we have this thing called, yeah, eisegesis. Okay, so exegesis is I'm taking. Out of the passage, what's there? I said, Jesus, I'm importing my ideas into the text. Does that make sense? So we want to be exegetes. We want to pull out what is there, the meaning, not import. Um, now, it's going to be important that we understand our audience so that we can apply it, but we don't want to get it confused by importing our ideas into the text, right? Our main goal is what does it mean, and then how can we apply it uh, is how we want to go. So those those are kind of two words that will be thrown around sometimes. Um I put down uh, this definition. It's uh, and again, I'll have all this for you. If you don't want to write this down, I'll have it for you in a digital way. Uh, it's preaching originates in Scripture, is grounded in Scripture, flows from Scripture that has as its goal the revelation of God's glory and grace, piercing the heart of the hearer. So, 
So again, it's the kind of things you said. It originates from, it's grounded in, it flows from, or it's just pouring out of the Bible. Um, it has this goal, again, the revelation of God's glory and grace uh, piercing the heart of the hearers, so it's effective in that way. And I, and I gave you in your notes there many different uh, guys kind of quoting what they, uh, what they say about um, expository preaching, why it's important. Um, again, it's, it's finding its primary theme and idea from that. And so it's important to know that, you know, that a lot of guys will say, well, I exposit the text, but a lot of times it's not, it's not what happens. There's not a lot of uh, guys expositing the text. They may read a text, and then it becomes like a springboard, right? You read the text because I need to read the Bible, and then they jump off into their own ideas about something. Um, and so expository preaching is going, I'm going to keep my nose right here. And I'm going to stick here. I'm going to stay here. It doesn't mean I don't go somewhere else and maybe cross-reference something, right, or anything like that, or bring illustrations. We'll talk about that. But my primary objective is to keep my nose here in this area, in this book, in this passage, to explain it so that it's properly understood. Okay? Um, number two there, some, some biblical examples I kind of gave you in your, in, in your uh, packet there. Lots of different ones. Uh, I love the, the uh, Ezra 7.10. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God, to do it, and then to teach his statutes and rules. Right? So he, he studied it, figured it out, applied it to himself. That's important. And then went and taught it to others, right? So he, he's implementing the, these lessons he's learning, and then he's teaching it to other people. Um, Nehemiah 8 there talks about the people, the very last verses. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense, meaning the meaning, so that the people understood the reading, right? That's kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about expository preaching. We're presenting it, reading it, explaining it so they understand it. Um, it's true to say expository preaching hasn't happened if people don't understand it, right? You can give a lot of information, but if they don't understand it, you haven't really taught them anything, right? Um, next, next page there, some uh, biblical exhortations here to, to preaching is um, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, um, our call to, to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture and then to exhort and to teach it, right? There's kind of our our flow again, we read it, explain it, exhort it, teach it to people. Um, and you see that laid out, laid out in 2 Timothy chapter 4 um, as, as well. Uh, number four there, the difference between lecture teaching, expository preaching. They, these are all things that are important. I'm not saying that none of these, uh, that preaching is better or, or preaching is the only way to do it. There's lots of different methods of teaching. You may find yourself in formats that, that address all of these. Um, when we talk about lecture we're, we're talking about, you know, explaining information, explaining events. A lot of times the, we use he, she, they. We're kind of just conveying information. A lot of times the, the goal is to kind of form the mind. Teaching, on the other hand, is a lot of times a, a two-way dialogue. You know, a lot of times you're using, call it like a Socratic method of teaching, which is kind of question-answer based. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you questions to kind of lead you to an answer, right? And we're dialoguing, we're talking back and forth. Uh, that's kind of the teaching format. We use the we, us, our kind of language. Uh, the goal is to kind of change the will. We want to have some, some change happen. Uh, preaching, though, is now is a one-way proclamation. We're using the second person plural, right? We're going you, uh, and we're addressing them. Uh, the goal is to change the heart. We want to get to worship. That's the goal of preaching is worship. That's what we want. We don't want just people to just get information. We don't want just to know information. We want them to worship Christ. Um, in order to do that, as we'll talk about later, as, as the title of your book I gave you, is we, we've got to be Christ-centered. We've got to get to Christ. We want them to worship Him, not our ingenuity or ideas or 
you know, that we're a great teacher or that was a great insight. Like, we want them to get to Christ and not, not us. All right? Um, why? Number five there. Why expository? Well, why is it important to kind of stick your nose in the text and kind of uh, pull out of it and explain it? Uh, let me give you a few reasons for that. I've got them listed there. Um, one is uh, going to be we have conviction. Um, really, it's expository preaching is uh, the best method of displaying and conveying the conviction that the, all, that the whole Bible is inerrant, it's inspired, it's reliable and true, right? So I'm, I'm basing my conviction on it's, it's reliable and true because this is what I'm teaching you, right? If I didn't believe it was reliable and true and accurate, then I wouldn't stick my nose in it and present it to you, right? And so it's really conveying that by that method. Um, authority, it, it helps the hearers recognize that the authority is not in the preacher, but in the word of God, right? If I'm saying this is what it's, this is what he says, it's not about me, it's what he says here. Uh, it gives authority. Uh, letter C, it's agenda, it enables God to set the agenda. That's why I, one of the things I love about expository preaching. I got to go from this passage next week, and I got to go to the next passage the next week, and God sets the agenda. It prevents from prevents us from getting on a hobby horse or going on rants about this or that. Like, we just go through the text and what God brings up. He sets the agenda. Uh, D, history. It just, it not only lines up, I think, with, with church history, and I don't have time to go into, like, church history and all that, but, but it, I think it lines up as this is the primary method been used. But also there's a sense of timelessness. I can present you these sermons, and they're, they're, they're guys that died a long time ago, but they're still applicable because they're grounded in Scripture. Right, so if it's if it's just pop culture stuff and it's all addressing modern need things, then then you and you're not really diving into the scriptures. It's 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 not very timeless. It's three months later. It's not applicable anymore. Right, and so we, we, if we go through those scriptures, it actually is something that's timeless and lasts. Um, letter E, spirit. It brings uh, allows the by delivering the scriptures and reading them, explaining them. It allows the Holy Spirit to do His work. Right, His job. Uh, John fourteen. Uh, through 16, you can kind of read those three chapters, and John kind of says the Spirit's ministry is to convey the Word of God in a way that reveals Christ. He brings conviction, uh, Jesus says there in, in John 14 through 16. Letter F, uh, foundation, it gives a foundation uh, for basic Bible study methods. So so if you're you're teaching the Scriptures, you're observing them, you're showing them, you're outlining it, you're, you're giving the meaning, what you're doing over a consistent amount of time is you're actually, the whole analogy, you're teaching people to fish and not just giving them fish, right? So you're, you're helping them to go back home and go, boy, he did it, I can do it. Well, he can observe it, I can observe it. Right? And the more you do it, the more people begin to get a foundation of, okay, this is how you study the Bible. Uh, it's not, because I mean, a lot of times if you just, and there's nothing wrong with topical messages, sometimes you have to have topical messages. But when it's topical, people sometimes like, I'll never be able to do that. I, I have no idea where to find this or find that. But maybe if you just give a passage, and I'm, I'm supposed to look at it, observe it, and make observations, and, and interpret it. Well I, well, I can start to learn to do that over a period of time by listening to somebody who's doing it. Yeah? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that, because I remember there was a time in my life when I would listen to John MacArthur, and I'm like, what planet is this guy on? He's dry, he's boring, don't understand it. But it's the Spirit of God started to open my heart, and I... It took a study of church history for me to understand this, and as I listen to this, it's amazing how it transformed my Christian life listening to expository preachers. Mm-hmm. Now, John MacArthur, I mean, I listen to hundreds of messages, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It, yeah, it's interesting you say that, because yep. it's kind of been a framework that has changed my thinking. Well, it changes, it, it starts after a while, so it's changing how you approach the Bible yourself. Absolutely. You know, like, 
you know, if, if, if all you listen to is someone who's topical, right, they're just grabbing topics and they're going through, that could be helpful but it, to you and to your life, but, but in terms of like laying a foundation for you on how to go find that and do that is not really helpful. But if you're teaching someone through expository preaching, like you're showing them verse by verse, they can go back and begin to build that habit. Now they can approach the scriptures. They can grow to a greater depth. Again, you know, teach them the fish rather than just giving them fish. Um, uh, letter G there, uh, accountability. Uh, again, it prevents the preacher from importing ideas into the Bible. Um, the danger of, of topical is just ripping verses out of context. It's, it can get really bad. I mean, guys can rip rip verses and just kind of, because it's one verse in the Bible and they can read it. And most people, unfortunately, many Christians can just hear a, a verse read by somebody and be like, no, wait, he read the Bible, so I mean, it must be true. And it just gets ripped right out of context without, see, if you're exposing a passage, then you've got to deal with the verses before and after. And you know, you, it's kind of hard to rip it out of context when you actually are having to preach in the context, right? Uh, again, not saying that you can't do topical, not saying that it's not helpful at times. Um, it's just, it's real dangerous because you can really rip stuff out uh, pretty easily. So it provides accountability for the person who's teaching to kind of stay in that. Because it's important, James 3.1 is going to tell us that, that we, in, we who teach the word are, will incur a stricter judgment. That's, that's sobering, right? I mean, that is, I mean, we will incur a stricter judgment, those who are presenting it. So we want to make sure we present rightly. <laughs> We don't want to dishonor God by saying something he didn't say. Uh, we don't want to disserve people by, by giving them wrong ideas and wrong theology and wrong information. Um, it's, a very, it's, it's, a, it's a very sobering thing to realize that we, are, we will be held to a stricter judgment based on, um, as teachers uh, of, of the word. Um, on, uh, let's see, what I got? Oh, yeah, uh, page 11. So, Spurge, I want to read this part before we get into the, the first part here. Spurgeon said this, There seems to me to have been twice as much done in some ages in defending the Bible as in expounding it. But if the whole of our strength shall henceforth go to the exposition and spreading of it, we may leave it pretty much to defend itself. So he's just saying, like, hey, it's, God's a big boy. He can take care of himself. Just present it. I love his, this is what, I mean, Spur, these guys are so good at imagery, right? I do not know whether you see that lion. It is very distinctly before my eyes. A number of persons have advanced to attack him while a host of us would defend the grand old monarch, the British line, with all our strength. So he's digging into, like, the... He's taking a shot at the politics here in, in Britain at the time. Many suggestions are made, and much advice is offered. This weapon is recommended, and the, and, and the other. Pardon me if I offer a quiet suggestion. Open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. Why, they're all gone. He no sooner goes forth in the strength than his assailants flee. The way to meet the infidelity is to spread the Bible. The answer... To every objection against the Bible is the Bible. And that's what he says. He says, just open up, just let the lion out. Just let him go. I mean, God, God is big enough to take care of himself and can do his work. That's the amazing thing. I mean, it's, it's humbling to preach and teach scripture and realize there is a multitude of people with all kinds of life situations going on, people in all kinds of spiritual states, some not saved, some saved, some maturing, growing, some slotting back. I mean, there, it's impossible to stand before people and actually think that you're going to you're going to meet every need and fix every problem and address every... It's just, it's impossible. But the beautiful thing about the scriptures is that God, God can do that, but you've got to let him speak, right? So if you're just going to get up there and expound your ideas and throw your ideas out there, that's, there's no power behind that. You're, you're still caging the lion up. You know? You've got to, got to let him go. So I love that analogy that he gives us there. All right, so any questions thus far?
All right. Flyover of this one, all right? The conviction of, uh, we have an hour. Conviction of Scripture, all right? Conviction. This is, again, if we're, if we're going to use uh, Spurgeon's kind of picture here, if we're going to unleash the lion, we've got to know the lion, and we also got to be convinced that if we let him go, he's going he's gonna to do the work, right? I mean, we've got to be convicted of that, convinced of that. Otherwise, we'll try to defend it, and we'll, we'll try to be, you know, uh, all kinds of different methods and everything else. We just didn't want to be, be convinced that he's able to defend uh, himself. And so, so this is kind of an area of what we call bibliology, kind of study the Bible stuff that we want to kind of lay a foundation for. So, number one, you have there, um, the Bible is, is a letter. Okay, that's the first thing we understand about the Bible. There's many things about it we'll talk about here, but one is it's a letter. Um, we talk about revelation of God. God reveals himself. We call it in theology general revelation and special revelation. What is, what is general revelation? What do we, when we say that, what do we mean, general? Right, things everyone can see, like creation, Romans talks about creation, conscience, right, uh, chapter 1 and 2 of that. And then special revelation is what? Spirit-led, Holy Spirit-led. In what? In the, in the scriptures, right? In the scriptures. So we have our general revelation, God reveals himself um, through creation, conscience. We have special revelation, God reveals himself through, through specific means of scriptures, right there, through the Holy Spirit, opening people's eyes to see the scriptures. So, so general revelation tells us about God's existence. Special revelation tells us that God wants a relationship with us, right? I can't tell that, I, that God wants a relationship with me by looking at a tree. I can tell beauty. I can tell creativity. I can tell power. I can, I can tell things, see things about God, but I can't understand that A, he wants a relationship, and B, that I can have a relationship or how I can have a relationship, right? I need special revelation to be able to, to do that. And so the Bible is more like a, a letter from the Creator of the universe, and it is a record of laws of nature. It's, 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 that's the, the point of it. And so um, a record of, na- of natural laws is impersonal, a letter from the creator is personal. Right? So we need to understand it's a personal letter uh, being given to us. And God speaks. God speaks through, through a book, right? He's not a, just an idea to be thought about. He's a person to relate to. And that's important if we're going to teach the scriptures. He's a person. We talk about the Trinity, and we talk about God as a person, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons. And so God's a person to be related to, not just an idea to think about. So when we're teaching, we're not just trying to get them to know information about God. We want them to relate to God. We want them to know, know about God, right? And so, and so that, that gives us kind of, we talk about the, the totality of the Bible as being a letter. We talk about, if we give it like a four-point outline, you'd have creation, which is at the beginning, all right, Genesis 1 and 2. And you have the fall in Genesis 3, and then you're like, you have all the way from Genesis 4 all the way going up until, until Matthew. Um, right? You have creation, fall, and you have going into the New Testament. You have redemption, and you have restoration. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's kind of the four acts, as it were. It was a play. The four acts of the Bible um, as, as laid out in that way. And again, with all of it kind of pointing back to, to the person and work of Christ. You see there at the bottom of your page 11, Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's they that bear witness about me. You're saying it's all pointing to me. It's all about a relationship with me. Uh, it's not just information for you. A lot of the religious leaders at the time had made it that. Right? It became a list of rules and regulations. It became a, a cultural kind of religion. Um, it, it wasn't about a relationship when Jesus says it was. It was pointing to the reality of, of God, the reality of me. Uh, number two, uh, we need to also understand the Bible's alive. What do I mean by that? Well, it's not just black words on white paper, right? 
I mean, think God, you know, scripture talks about God breathes through scripture. It, it is God's, God, it's a living word. Uh, you see there, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is, is living, right? It's living. Um, you, you see that uh, the text says the word of God is, a, is alive. It's not just that God is alive, it's living. Matter of, fact, matter of fact, if you go to Hebrews 4, where that text is, Hebrews 4.12 talks about the word of God living, and then verse 13 just transitions right over to the fact that, to the person of God. It goes right into explaining God's activity. It never makes a segue. It never says, oh yeah, and God is alive too. It just moves on. In other words, the connection between the word of God and the person of God were inseparable to people in the New Testament. That's how they understood it. They, they weren't separate ideas or separate things. They were one and the same. So that means when you, when you read the Bible, this is why we talk about, not just because the New Testament tells us to read scripture, give attention to public reading of scripture. When you read the scriptures, it's the only time that literally, you are literally out of the way. Right? I mean, it, God himself is speaking. That's why we do the Sunday morning, you know, we say, stand up, this is God's word, you know, we read it, you know, we say, this has been the reading of God. We do all that for a reason, because that's the one time in the service where it's, you say, unadulterated God speaking. There is no one else giving commentary, no one else giving ideas, it's just, boom, here it is. Because we believe that God speaks through it, just literally speaks through his word. So, and you can see there, all these verses from Hebrews, there's a, this kind of goes on to talk about living God, living God, living God. When the first one he talks about is the word of God's living. Again, those connections are being made through that. Um, so we see on, um, on 2 Timothy 3.16 there, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's God's breath. God's breathing scripture out. So when we read the scriptures, God's speaking through them. It's alive. Yes? That, you know, that's, I find that just, you know, we all have these things where I just need to have my daily Bible time or I need to, you know, get in the Word. And sometimes we want to make it this big ordeal if we have to do all these things. But I think you just merely read the Word of God, right? Just read that every day is a life-changing thing. It's like bringing this fountain of fresh water into your soul and you're thinking about it. Yep. Right. Well, I think that's nice about right, the technology, like to having like an audio where you can, even when you're driving, Absolutely. you can just listen to it being read to you. Is it's just power behind just the listening of it. Yeah. Absolutely. I always remind back to that Nehemiah, right? They just they just stood, read the word of God all day long. Just come, read it. Yeah. And they're <laughs> yeah. standing there listening to whatever, right? Yeah. Yep. I don't yep. know. Right. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's why, like, uh, that's why you can go to Philippians one, and you'll see Paul make the argument of like, you know. Some people preach out of pretense and greed and other reasons, right? The bad motivations, but he says, I still rejoice that the word of God has been preached. Why? Because it's powerful. Absolutely. Even if it's coming from someone with a wrong idea or, wrong, or, or, or some kind of wrong motivation, it's still powerful even being read. It was, uh, I remember reading, um, there's a two-part biography by, um, I can't think of the author, but it's on George Whitfield. Whitfield was a famous preacher back uh, 1700, contemporary with uh, Jonathan Edwards, actually. And he had... Um, he would. He was actually. He was. This is true. He was actually cross-eyed. Uh, he was fairly overweight, and so they they made fun of him all the time. Like the people would. I mean, he'd go out and preach in these fields, which no one had done, by the way. That was like crazy idea to get to go outside the church building, go into the fields, and start preaching. He'd go to coal mines, and these people would come up out of the gutters. He said they would be touched by the word of God. It'd be like gutters running. They could see the streams running down their eye because they were just covered in black soot. And so he'd go out there because no one would go out there. So he'd go out there and preach, and people get upset, and they'd, they'd throw dead cats at him. They'd throw cow manure at him. I mean, he was constantly, like, dodging, trying to preach and have stuff thrown at him. And uh, there was one time that they went back. There was a story about the, um, 
can't remember what they called them now. I've shared this before on the Sunday before, but they went to this, they were at this bar, and all these guys that were kind of this uh, hellfire club, is what they called themselves. And they got there, and they're all mocking Whitfield, you know, and this is how they had fun. They're like, had a few drinks, and they would just mock Whitfield. And one of them got up there, and because they printed the sermons out like this, and he got up there and started reading it, kind of mocking. He crossed his eyes, and he's, you know, reading Whitfield's sermon. About halfway through, he stops. And he puts his head down, he goes back and sits down, and everyone's like, what, what are you doing? And, you know, it's like, and, and the guy ends up getting saved. You know, he got saved by mockingly <laughs> preaching Whitfield's sermon, you know, because he's preaching scripture, right? I mean, it's just powerful, even, even in the mockery of it, right? And so, so that's why we believe it's, it's alive. So that's why we, we have to believe that if we're going to present it to others. Um, let's see, on page 13 there of your notes, we'll look at another direction. The Bible is necessary. Now, um, necessary. It's necessary what? It's necessary to know the gospel, right? It's necessary to, uh, if we're going to grow spiritually, it's necessary that we that we have it. If we're going to know what God wants from us, God's will, then we need to have it, we need to read it, and know it, and teach it. Uh, it's required, as you see Romans 10 there, without without the word of God, without, without the preaching of the word of God, without the word of God itself, people will never know Christ, right? That's, general revelation is not sufficient enough to save people from their sins. They need to hear about God. They need to hear about Christ. They need to hear about uh, salvation. And so um, so it's important to understand that. So you get to Luke 16, you see Jesus making those, you know, even even miracles themselves weren't sufficient. If a guy came back from the dead, you know that story, he says there, hey, you, you know, send, send people back to my brother. You know, don't, I don't want him to be here. He goes, well, he's got Moses and the prophets. He, he's got the scriptures. You may... So what he's saying is that someone raises from the dead <laughs> and comes back and says, hey, Jesus is real. God's like, no, the word of God is actually more sufficient and more powerful than that. That's pretty, pretty amazing, right? Pretty amazing. And so miracles by themselves, while they may be able to convince um, you know, that Jesus can do miracles or whatever, um, I just think about Jesus' own brothers, right? I mean, his own brothers saw all those things. They even believed he could do miracles. You go to John 7, they're like, hey, go in there and show yourself, man. But even it goes on to say, but even his brothers didn't what? They didn't believe in him. <laughs> they, they still didn't save them, even though they knew he was powerful, etc. So um, I think it's interesting. You know, we talk about the Bible is necessary, and we all can kind of amen that and agree to that and say, well, that's obvious, let's move on. But it's not obvious in our world. It's not even obvious in the church anymore. I mean, if you look. Go to iTunes, go to, you know, top podcasts, go to Christian bookstores, see top sellers of Christian books, and you'll find a whole host of, very few of them would be guys that were actually expositing the scriptures and explaining them. A lot of them, you know, have ideas or um, importing verses here or there, and they may have some, and I'm not saying it's all bad, but it's very few are actually standing and presenting the word of God as it is, uh, as necessary in that way. And so it is important for us uh, to continue to embrace that as men and continue to move forward in that way. All right, uh, page 14. Moving right along here. Um, the Bible is inspired. Okay, we have to understand that. Um, we talk about ins- inspire. We have to ask the question, what does it mean the Bible is inspired? What, how would you define that? The Bible is inspired. What do, what do you mean by that? Talked about God Okay, what else? Led by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Holy Spirit led, 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 led what? In what way? How did he do it? Did the author write? 
Right, so he worked, moved in human authors to write the scriptures down, right? Okay, good. Yeah, I put down this way. So I use the word superintended. I use different words. But got superintended, and he was the one moving the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind, the words of their original writings. So he, he moved them. So what they recorded was without error and exactly what God wanted them to record. Okay? And so he, he superintended again that Second Timothy 3.16 there in 17. He breathed it out. Um, he, he superintended that. He moved in that way. And so when we talk about inspiration, it doesn't mean that the Bible just simply contains God's revelation. It does not mean that gems of revealed truth are hidden somewhere in there if you kind of mine enough to find them. It doesn't mean that men wrote God's truth and then God kind of went along and kind of you know, edited it or, or approved it or whatever. It means that God literally wrote it, but he wrote it through, uh, through men. And so one of the uh, things we'll use when we talk about Scripture um, is this. We use this, this language. Oh, I don't have it up there. I thought I did. I don't. I'll write it up for you. Um, so we have... that previous slide? Oh, yeah. I'll put it back on. Sure. <laughs> There you go. So, <clears throat> verbal, plenary, oops, plenary, did I spell that right? Plenary, and inspiration. So, we call, we, we believe in, we call verbal, plenary, inspiration, right? I know we have to add all this language. The reason I have to ask, uh, keep adding language to stuff is because the Bible keeps getting attacked. <laughs> and so we have to kind of keep adding language to clarify what we mean um, in every, every situation. So, so verbal plenary inspiration. And so verbal meaning the, the very words of the Bible. So we, mean, we believe every word, not just it, it's a book in of itself, but every single word is inspired. Uh, plenary means every part. So, so you have verbal is your words, plenary, every part, inspiration. God breathed, right? And so that, that's kind of putting those as what we believe, verbal, the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. And so, um, so we go through that. This means that God, the Holy Spirit, inspired not just the thoughts of Scripture, but also the very details and the exact words. Um, they were perfectly recorded. So this means, bottom line, practically for us, it means every word matters. This is why we're going to spend a lot of time talking about every word <laughs> and, and look at the details. And why we're going to be like, so have our nose in the text and continue to look at passages and really take them apart. Because every word matters. If we didn't believe this, then we wouldn't, then every word wouldn't matter. And we could just kind of just give general ideas, right? And so that's when we talk about teaching and preaching scripture in this way. This is why the method we're going to use is driven by our theology, our belief uh, in the scriptures that every word uh, does matter. So in your passage, you see like Matthew 5.18 there in your packet, uh, you know, Jesus talks about not an iota or a dot right, will pass. It, the iota was, was uh, the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. There were over 66,000 of them in the Greek Old Testament. The Old Testament written Hebrew, right? New Testament written in Greek. Old Testament had a Greek translation of it uh, called the Septuagint, or sometimes you'll see it called LXX. Um, and that version of it had 66,000 of those that Jesus would have been quoting from. So he said, not a single one of those. All those meant something. <laughs> Um, he talks about the dot is probably the little tiny, a lot of times Hebrew will have, um, I, I, I'm not good at Hebrew, that's like you, that's like, that's it, that's, uh, it's math now, aren't I good at that? Um, yeah, 
<laughs> it's like, um, but a lot of times you'll have you'll have dots over top, um, you know, that will kind of indicate different things about about the language. Um, I, I, me and Hebrew didn't get along. I didn't like Hebrew. Greek was great. Hebrew was, I almost quit over Hebrew, but um, I made it. No, but it, but the little dots indicate a change, and the whole word can be different based on where a dot is, right? So that's how what Jesus is saying. Every little dot. Is it all means something? It's all it's all important to that, okay? And we see that even that John twenty one uh, phrase, you know, this when he's talking to Peter, and um, if it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me, right? And so the saying spread abroad among the brothers. The disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him he was not to die. But if it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? So he just repeated exactly what he said before. He said, no, no, that's not what he meant. He meant exactly what he said, and we go back and say it again. Right? So, it's, again, every little detail is, was important um, to them in that way. Okay. Uh, how did God bring about inspiration of Scripture? So he brought it back uh, through, so through the Holy Spirit, through, through human authors in written form. Okay? It's in a written form. 2 Peter 1 talks about how, how that happened. Um, it talks about there in 2 Peter 1, about how, how important the Word of God is to, um, um, even more so than first-hand experience. That whole passage talks about Peter saying, hey, I saw Jesus transfigured, right? But what's more trustworthy is the written Word of God is actually more trustworthy than the experience that I saw up on that Mount of Transfiguration. And so he's speaking of the, when he talks about that graphe, the, the word that the prophecies is the Old Testament um, word, is more sure uh, than, than seeing Jesus' face. Um, letter C there, what, what, what role, page 15, what role do human authors play in inspiration? And um, so God moved through human ages to create the written word, so he moved through them. Your passage there, packet gives you Second Peter 1, 20-21. It says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love that imagery. It's a, it's a word for wind in the sails of a ship. They were carried along. And I feel inspired now by the music next door. We need thicker walls, you know, right here. Um, and so anyway, so they were they were moved along. Right? So the Holy Spirit was like just, whoosh, just kind of breathing them, moving them along uh, in that process so that they wrote down exactly what what God wanted them to write. And so um, and so it wasn't uh, again or carried along uh, like a ship would have been. And so so we're saying that God's God's word was um, not necessarily just dictated, right? Not necessarily just uh, God said, here's what you say, write it. There are portions of scripture like that where God said, write this, and they wrote it. But a lot of it was God using, which is interesting for us. We think about our, our situation as, as preachers, teachers of scripture, is that God used their personalities. He used their background. Um, he used their situations in life in such a way that what they wrote, when they wrote, um, they wrote exactly what God wanted to write, yet God used their lives through that. It's really interesting. Matter of fact, um, well, I'll take this one. BB, uh, it was BB Warfield was his name. Warfield was uh, was one of the guys that fought for the for the scriptures in the early early 20th century. Um, it was one of the Ivy Ivy schools. Now I can't think of it in Princeton where he was at. But anyway, he wrote he wrote a um, this. Sorry, my handwriting is awful. Um, concurrence is uh, is the idea that he talked about. Uh, he kind of coined that phrase, which is the idea of having God and it's not not that man and God were cooperating to write the scriptures, as if they were like tag teaming it. It was that God was 
allowing the men to write, and yet at the same time they were writing exactly what he wanted them to write. So he was using them and their personalities, and they both were happening um, at the same time. And so, so it was uh, it was not God and man co- collaborating. Man wasn't writing a draft, and God coming in and, and making revisions. Uh, it was the Holy Spirit and moving through human agents to create the written word of God exactly how he wanted it to write it. So that's important. So when you go to teach, man, that means that, that God's going to use your story, your your situation, your background, some of the things, maybe some of the wounds and pains you've experienced, suffering you've gone through, losses that you've had. God will use all of that to help help convey to people the, the word of God so that they can understand it. I think that's really fascinating. That's what he did um, when the Bible was written itself. Uh, let's see, page what are we on? 16. Page 16, the Bible is authoritative. This goes along with inspiration, but we, we have to believe this. Um, well, let's see, where am I at here? My, there we go. Um, so it's authoritative, and what we mean by that is that, um, is that basically to, to disobey or disbelieve any part of Scripture is to disobey or disbelieve God. Okay, that's the swing by it's authoritative. Those two things go together. Uh, we we um, that that the word of God has in itself its authority. It's written by God. It's from God. And so if we disobey or disbelieve it, we're disobeying or disbelieving God Himself. Um, and so that's we don't we don't uh, stand above it, right? The Bible, we you know we it stands over us, right? We're underneath the Scriptures, and we preach. We're submitted underneath it. Our goal is to present it because it, it in and of itself is authoritative. And so every every word again carries weight um, of the binding authority of its original, its ultimate author, uh, in that way. Uh, number six, I got the number wrong up there, but number six, uh, the Bible is inerrant. Um, this is again the idea that it's that it's completely true and without error. And I'm going to keep making the statement in the original writings, and we'll talk about that in a moment why that's important. Um, original writings, we have to come to kind of grips with the idea that Scripture. Um, we do not have the original manuscripts or autographs, is what it means. I don't have the we don't have the actual letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, right? Not that we lost one. We're talking about that one, but that's a whole different conversation. But like First Corinthians or Ephesians, we don't have the actual letter that he wrote. We have copies of copies, right? And we'll talk about why uh, why we still can trust it, uh, nonetheless. So um, why do we believe the Bible is inerrant? Um, Basically because God is true, therefore the Bible, his words are without error, and his words must be trusted. I know that's circular reasoning, but that's just where we are. It is the fact that God is true. He says he himself is true. He says his word is true. Um, and so we, we should be able to, to trust it. You can see a lot of passages there on the bottom of page 16 that are in there. Um, but it also is from a practical standpoint, that last verse, Psalm 36, 9, In your light do we see light. Uh, speaking of God's word has a way of helping us see. Um, so it's not just the fact that it says it's true, but also from an experiential standpoint, it, we can, it makes sense. We can understand who we are. We can understand how the world runs, how it works, where it's going, um, all through scripture. And so you see the quote on top page 17. Lewis said this, is I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Right? It, it helps me see everything else out there, and so that's important. So we talk about, um, sorry, my, my, my outline up there on the screen is way off, not number 29, letter B. Um, what is the, 
Really close, right? Really close. Uh, what is the big deal about embracing inerrancy? The big deal about that? Um, well, a few things. You see them written there. One is, as we said before, the character of God is, God is flawed without it. If we don't believe in inspiration, we have a problem with God here. God says he's true, says his word is true, and if that's not right, we have a real problem with, with, with God. Either, either A, he spoke falsely, or B, he didn't have the power to prevent it from being false. We, either way, we got a real problem on our hands, right? Um, number, number two, our trust in God is, uh, is weakened without it. Um, God has given us, this is where he talks about, to protect us. It's not so as much as it is for God as it is for us. It's protect us from errors, protect us from going the wrong way. Um, and so they're helping to prevent us from, from not erring as well. Um, I think I skipped one for you, didn't I? Uh, anyway, uh, I said no, number two, our trust in God is weakened without it. So we can't really, again, we can't really trust anything he says if we if it's not completely without error. Number three, God's love toward us is impossible without it. As we said, it's uh, there to prevent us. It's loving to us that he gave us a, a word that's inerrant. Uh, he's trying to protect us. And then number four, uh, the, the consequence ultimately without inerrancy is that God himself is made up without it. Um, someone once said that, you know, God made man in his image and today man's just returning the favor. Right? We just, we're making God in our own image. So if we, don't, if we don't have an inerrant word, you know, a word without error, then we're just making God up at this point. Right? And so and that, that, again, has all kinds of repercussions of why, why, that, is, um, why that is dangerous. And so... On um, letter C, see there, what about all the errors in the Bible? always love that. You ever get that question? Someone asks you that? What do you, what do you say when someone comes to you and says, what about all the Bible is full of errors? What do you say? Show me. Show me. Yeah, that's what I said. What errors? Show me. <laughs> where, where are they? And usually the answer is, oh, wow, I, mean, I just heard that they were errors. I, mean, I haven't actually read them. Um, is usually the response to that. And just realize there's no new problems. That's another thing about, I love about church history. There's nothing new under the suns. I mean, Solomon said that Ecclesiastes. No one's going to find something that's like, oh, I found this new unique error that no one's ever seen before. Um, uh, there's no new arguments in that way. That doesn't mean there's not difficult passages. If you preach and teach scripture long enough, you're going to find some very difficult passages. Um, you're going to find a lot of questions you're going to have to ask and wonder, like, what in the world is going on or what's the meaning behind this? Um, a lot of times you speak of uh, difficulty. I love how uh, you see that in uh, 2, 2 Peter three fifteen through 16. This is Peter speaking. Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And there are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> so there's Peter affirming, by the way, in that passage, that, that, the, that Paul wrote scripture, graphe, the same word used to describe the prophecies of the Old Testament. And he's saying that even some of the things Paul wrote, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to figure them out, right? So... Yes, there will be. It doesn't mean there's not difficulties. We're not saying that there won't be difficult uh, to understand things. Um, we might not have an answer to every question we have right now, but we do have the conviction that it's still without error. The problem lies on our end, not on God's end, right? Um, letter D, what about the loose and free quotations in the Bible? Um, this is, uh, sometimes you read the New Testament, if you notice this, you read the New Testament, they're quoting the Old Testament, and you go back and read the Old Testament verse, and you're like, that's not exactly the same. You ever seen that before? It's not like an exact replica, replica, uh, replicated from the Old Testament to the New. And I think it's important to know that when we talk about that, you remember that the method by which one person quotes the words of another person is a procedure that in large part varies from culture to culture. So we think quotation marks give the exact quote, unquote, right? There was no such thing in the Greek language. They didn't have quote and unquote. 
Um, the, the idea in that culture was to give the gist of what was said by the person to carry it on. So they were, they were still quoting the way that culture would have quoted it back then. And so sometimes, also understand that a lot of times New Testament writers, and this will be helpful for us later when we talk about this, translations and stuff, but when the, when the New Testament writers were quoting from the Old Testament, a lot of times they weren't quoting from the Hebrew, which is the original. They were quoting from the Greek version, which was a translation. It was a translation. They, most of the New Testament apostles, they, even Jesus, would, would have probably quoted from the Greek version. God, Jesus used trusted translations. We can trust translations. We don't have the original, because you don't have Greek or Hebrew in your hand. Um, doesn't mean you can't fully understand the scriptures. It mean you can't fully teach it and be adequate in that way. All right? Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. Go ahead. Just because most, a lot of the New Testament writers are Hebrews. Yep. Be- okay, Be- because because that's what have been would have been used um, by and large by the they were still most commoners, right? The apostles, for example, were uh, they 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 used Koine Greek, which was a very common Greek language. It wasn't um, it wasn't of the scholars per se. So, like if you read the Greek language in in, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, it's really simple. I mean, you kind of picked it up. You read the English version of Mark. You kind of read that's a little different than John or Matthew. It's really simple, like it's, but the, the original language is like that. It's real simple language. Uh, you read the Book of Hebrews, you're like, man, that, that original Greek language is really hard to read because it's really high class, like scholarly kind of person who wrote it. They were just different individuals. But a lot of the guys who wrote the New Testament were not scholars. I mean, I mean, Paul was, but a lot of the others um, were not in that way. And but the, what most people would have used were they're writing to give to churches to read. But what were they reading? Well, a lot of them were reading Greek or understood Greek. So, um, and so that's what they would have used. Even they're quoting from it, they're still quoting. That's what they would have had. Would have been the Septuagint or LXX copy of that. There have been Hebrew translations. Would still been maybe in the synagogues, like that one copy there. But by and large, people still used the Greek version of that uh, Old Testament. And so that helps a little helps a little bit with the quotations and things that happen with that. Um, the grammar, um, you know, there's a lot of times uh, people get, uh, you know, if you go to the original languages, you'll find that it's not necessarily an English grammar textbook. Obviously, it's not, but the grammar's not always perfect. Um, that doesn't mean it's it's erroneous. Actually, it's actually written in a very very purposeful way. Um, so it doesn't mean the Bible is in, isn't inerrant. It means that God used the writer's own education to record Scripture. Also keep in mind that a statement can be ungrammatical, but it's still entirely true. I think ungrammatical is even a word. See, that's the whole point. Um, <laughs> but uh, you'll find that. So you'll find, like, a lot of times the writers, like, I love the Hebrews 13.5 is a great example of this. Um, you'll find where it says that uh, he will never leave you or forsake you. It looks really simple in English. If you go to the Greek language, it's really bad grammar because it's five double negatives. And English teachers would get all upset at that, right? But it's like, I will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you, right? So, I mean, it's, it's a lot of language there. It was written for a purpose. And a lot of times in the Greek, you don't have the same, you don't have the same rules we do in English. You can structure a sentence however you want it. So a lot of times in the Greek, you would actually move your primary point or your main word to the very front. So it doesn't, doesn't read well. So, um, so if you put there on page 19, Jude 1. Uh, so Jude 1 has... Uh, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, those who are called, beloved in God the Father, kept for, the, kept for Jesus Christ. Original language, actually, the, the actual first word in that in the Greek is beloved. It's the first word. So it actually reads, beloved, to those in God, kept for, kept for Jesus Christ who are called. That's how it starts. 
But why does it start with beloved? Well, if you read the whole, the whole letter, they needed to know they were loved by God. And that was the theme, because he starts it with that, he ends it with that. The end of Jude talks about being you know, kept in the love of God. And so he starts it off that way, because that's what he wants to convey as his main point. They can do that. In Greek, you can move the words around. It makes it really hard to translate it, because you're trying to figure out where, where's the main verb and what's going on here. Uh, but that's how they could, they could do that back then. Another one is the scientific and historical data that you'll come across. Uh, sometimes people will, will question uh, those ideas. Um, what, page. what page are we on here? There we go, page 19 still. Okay. Um, so the Bible can be inerrant and still speak in ordinary language everyday speech. Okay, so remember, it's a letter written to people to read to understand. So it's not a necessarily a scientific data being conveyed. So when it talks about the sun rising, you could be critical, well, the sun actually doesn't rise, you know, the earth is moving, and it's, it's wrong, it's error. It's like, no, it, it was conveyed that what a normal person would have looked out there and gone, hey, the sun's rising. <laughs> that was the point. Um, it was written to the people to understand the, through their normal experience. So it wasn't mean it's filled with errors because it's not scientifically true that the sun rises. That wasn't the point at which they were writing it uh, in that way. They use popular language rather than technical terminology, uh, figures of speech, summary language. A lot of times you'll have, you know, 8,000 died in the battle. Well, was it actually 8,000? Well, it could have been 8,001. It could have been, uh, did we think someone had to count every dead body? No, they were given a summary, right? Eight, uh, we do that today. And we talk about, and we can use all kinds of different language. I can say, the, you know, the library is a mile and a half from my house. The library is close. The library is 1.43 miles away. I mean, we, all those are true. They're all true statements. One is just really, I'm not going to need to tell people, I'm 1.43 you know, miles away from the library. I'm going to tell them, oh, I'm just about a mile and a half away. That's a normal language, right? So the Bible sometimes will use that. But the Bible also sometimes will give very specific things, and we know that. When Peter caught fish on the shoreline, he caught 153. He, <laughs> we, we realized he probably counted every single one of those fish and counted every single one of them. Uh, they were important to him to know that's exactly how many fish he caught in John 21. Um, so anyway, so the, it's just important to understand it's used in everyday language. doesn't mean it's erroneous. It's just used to convey everyday language for people because it's a letter written to them. It's still accurate in that way. Um, letter G, this is a, 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 in our culture here. So why not just affirm that the Bible is only inspired, inerrant, and authoritative in faith and practice? Why not just do that? Why not just say it's, it's inerrant, inspired, authoritative, in faith and practice? What's wrong with that statement? I'm baiting you. Right. Yeah, it's taking out a lot of the, uh, a lot of times science and history, right? It's taking those, those two parts out and saying, well, we can trust it when it talks about issues of faith, and when it talks about how we're supposed to live, but when it talks about issues of history or issues of um, science or issues of those things, we, we can't, we can't trust that stuff. It's, and, you know, again, we're getting all kinds of issues. So if you have, you see there, uh, number one and two, these two statements. The Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Versus number two, the Bible is infallible only when it speaks of faith and practice. Sounds really similar. Which one do we believe? Number one. But it, it, it looks, sounds very similar. This is how, I mean, a lot, I mean, matter of fact, though, even the word infallible, um, or even like we use the word inerrancy in that way, the, the infallible word, is, is a, little, a little hesitate to use that because even the word infallible actually changed back in the 1960s. It started shifting. It used to mean, the infallible and inerrancy used to be the same thing. 
Um, and it, and then they started to shift. And the infallible word started to be, okay, well, the Bible's, it's good for faith and practice, but not for other things. And inerrancy became the word to go, no, the whole thing is without error. And so even the word infallible has kind of been hijacked uh, to kind of use that. So you may find circles where people be like, oh, yeah, I believe the Bible's infallible. But they won't believe it's inerrant. Because they'll believe, well, it's good for faith and practice, what we need it for, but the other stuff, we can't trust it. We believe that every part of it is, is, is trustworthy, and every part of it um, is without error. Okay? Um, let's see, let's go to letter H. So, we don't have the original manuscript, so how can we trust that the copies that are true, that we have are true? Uh, I think that's a, that's a valid question to ask. We don't have the originals. I don't have in my office. I can't go show you, you know, Colossians that Paul wrote in his actual handwriting. I don't, we don't have it. We have copies of copies. Um, so we feel like we still can trust the copies, and we can teach them with authority that this is God's word. Um, so we believe that our Greek and Hebrew versions and our translations are inerrant to the degree that they faithfully render the divine meaning carried by the inspired human words of the original manuscripts. In short, they can be, they can be trusted. And so... Uh, it's important we understand, like, the word that we have, uh, it's important to understand the whole process by which they copied stuff. If you were back to Bethlehem, we talked about some of this stuff in terms of how they copied things down. But they took it very seriously, right? They had to, uh, they had, people's job was literally to count every letter and make sure it lined up. You know, there's guys copying, there's guys counting. Um, they had rules, how many sentences per page, what kind of ink they could use. Uh, they were required to write, not a, quote, not a word or a letter from memory. Um, they had to have a thread between each one to make sure they were not um, doing it wrongly. They had to be fully dressed in their, their garb to, to copy it. They had to go take a bath if they were writing God's Word. I mean, they, they took it super seriously uh, in all of that. But we can also think about the fact that it still doesn't answer our question, how can we trust them? And I guess the analogy would be this way. So we have the U.S. Constitution. We have it in Washington. We have the original copy, right? What happens if it burns down the building and it's lost? Do we say, well, we don't have it anymore? Right? Well, what would we do? If we didn't have the actual original copy, how could we still trust that we had, we could still trust the, what process would we go about to find out what it, what it actually said? Look at the copies, right? We examine multiple copies, see what lines up, and you kind of go through that process. And that's, that's a process, I don't know if I wrote it in here or not. I did. Uh, textual variance, right? We're looking at at all these things, uh, we're looking at all the different copies of the copies, and we're looking at that, and we can be certain today, I can say this, you know, as we're teachers of preaching scripture, that we, 99% uh, of what we have, um, we, we can be fully confident that they are, that they are accurate exactly what was originally written. There's that 1% of some things that are like, there's some variants, meaning there's some copies that differ from each other on a very small percentage of stuff, um, and so some of that would get into passages like John 8, right? There's a passage in John 8 about uh, the woman caught in adultery. You see that, and maybe it's bracketed in your, in your version, or the end of Mark, the brackets, right? Those are like the variants where like, well, was that actually part of the original, or was it not? And there's a lot of debate, and scholars debate over which one was original, which one was not. Lots of arguments that go, I took classes on this stuff. I, well, I, I, it was good sleeping time. But no, it was, I mean, it was good material, but man, it was having to examine all these manuscripts and put them in front of you and talk about all that stuff. But nonetheless, um, but there, there would be a textual variance at the time. We, we can understand that. There may be reasons why, I mean, bad eyesight. There could be uh, confusing similar languages, hearing something incorrectly. Um, 
traditions, beliefs, things need to be adjusted. Sometimes people wrote down, like, I don't think that's right, and they changed it, <laughs> which is how we get some of the stories that actually are, are different. And so that whole process, we call that textual criticism, right? That's textual criticism of going through and figuring out the copies, comparing them, and when they differ, they're called textual variants in that way. So I put a quote in your, in your paper there with Daniel Wallace. This was good. He said, New Testament scholars face an embarrassment of riches compared to the data the classic Greek and Latin scholars have to contend with. The average classical author's literary remains um, remains a number no more than 20 copies. We have more than 1,000 times the manuscript data for the New Testament than we do for the average Greco-Roman author. Not only this, but the manuscripts of the average classical author are no earlier than 500 years after the time he wrote. The New Testament, we're waiting merely dec- mere decades for surviving copies of it. And so there's a you know, like this chart here, sorry for the, it's a little fuzzy there, but kind of some of the idea of the manuscripts, you can see the copies, uh, you can see the earliest copies there, you can see the time span uh, in years between the original and copies of it, I mean, look at the New Testament, we're 25 to 50 years after the originals, there was copies being made. Number of manuscripts, and look at that, number of manuscripts, 24,000 of them compared to the rest. Um, just to kind of make a, a comparison, if you I'll give you another chart here, Look at some of these. You go down to the kind of eyes, go down to the very bottom. You'll see the, the Iliad there. Um, you'll see 643 copies, 95% accuracy. 5,600 copies of the New Testament, 99.5% accuracy. Um, so if you think about that, so the, the Iliad has 15,600 lines of text, 764 lines that are in question as to their reliability. New Testament has 20,000 lines of text, only 40. That are, that are questions, some variation that they're having to kind of have have that over. I mean, it's less than one-half of one percent uh, variation, the co- just in the copies. Less than one-half of one percent variation in the copies. And those variances are very, very small uh, in that way. And when you compare all that to the fact that we have six times more copies of the New Testament than we do of the, the Iliad, uh, is pretty impressive as well. All right, number seven. Uh, the Bible's reliable. A um, few statements on this one. We'll go over on page 21. I kind of gave you some, some quote there by a guy named Ann Rice. Um, just just from scholarship, looking into to how, how passionate people are to try to dissuade you to believe that the New Testament is accurate and real and without error. And they're pretty vehement about uh, attacking Scripture, attacking the person and work of Christ in, uh, in, in today's scholarship. You see on page 21, how do we believe the Bible is reliable? Well, pretty, pretty simple statements. Number one, this is what the Old Testament claims about itself. And you'll see the, the statements made there. Um, the total, total you have of that 20, almost 2,500 times claims of inspiration. You see those broken down the Pentateuch, historical, uh, poetic, prophetic. It's just all over the place. You know, this is all the thus saith the Lord. Use the King James Version there, right? It, it's all over the place. It's, it's, it's claiming itself to be authoritative. Obviously, that's not the only reason we trust it, but that's one of them. Uh, letter B is what the New Testament claims about the Old Testament. Um, you find those passages uh, that are given there. Um, again, 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 We find the New Testament refers to the Old Testament. Um, they do so in a very specific way. They believe it's authoritative. There's never, a, there's never a, a New Testament author who's like, well, I think Moses may have said this, or I heard maybe that the psalmist said that. It's always, this is what he said. This is what was said. This is what God said. Letter C is what New Testament claims about the New Testament. Uh, we talked about this a little bit already, but this was 
that's Second Peter three fourteen. Um, talks about Paul's writings being the same as the writings of the Old Testament. He makes that connection of those two together. That First Timothy five eighteen is fascinating. That's two verses being quoted. Most, most people don't notice this. Two verses being quoted. The two verses are the first one that you shot muzzle the ox is from Deuteronomy. Right? You remember that. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Anybody know where that verse is from? Luke ten. It's from Luke ten. So it's, it's it's quoting. It's Jesus quoting. So he. I love how he says the scripture says Deuteronomy, and Jesus right statements in Luke. Like he, he doesn't separate them out and be like the the scripture says and then Jesus said. It's like no. These are both Deuteronomy and Luke are both scripture. I mean, there was never any doubt. In the in in of itself and what it claimed. Uh, letter D. This is what Jesus claimed um, about the Bible. Um, you know, again, he never said, "Well, I, I, you know, this story," or never corrected the statements that were made. I mean, I love um, when I used to work. I was put myself through seminary. I worked in audiology, and I, and I was always around these guys, and they were always trying to like debunk the Bible in every way. And they always loved to go for Jonah. Right? That was always our favorite ones. Like, yeah, right. Like you know, guys swallowed by fish, spit up, and it's like you know what. Jesus actually specifically chose to talk about that story. I mean, like he brought he brought that story up um, out of all the stories. You know, in the Old Testament, you could think, well, maybe that was figurative or whatever. It's like Jesus thought it was real. <laughs> and he he actually brought it up uh, as something he would he would quote from himself. He never doubted any part of it. Um, any, any matter of controversy Jesus would have when the Pharisees, someone he would always argue back with Scripture. He went back to to the Word of God. And so he always is what he claims to be. Um, page 23, we have there, letter E, uh, the Bible is understood to be history. I mentioned this uh, last Sunday in the sermon, we talked about this, I and mean, the Bible doesn't begin with once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away, right? It starts off, I love Matthew, starts off with a list of names, genealogy. Luke starts off with, in as much as, and he goes through all these guys and history, and it's a historical document. It was written with that purpose in mind. It wasn't written to be a fantasy um, one archaeologist noted that uh, in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke and, and Acts, both written by Luke, that 44 people are mentioned. Uh, there's 44 people not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, so it's unique individuals that are historically backed up as real people. So there's 44 people that Luke references in Luke and Acts that are not anywhere else in Scripture, that history backs up that those people actually did exist at those times and every, everything else. He said that Luke references 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without making a single mistake. They're all, they were all there. They were all real. And we know from multiple other documents as well. And so, uh, 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands that Luke references in Luke and Acts, all of which have been historically backed up as accurate and present in those times. I and mean, you consider all the all the how things changed too. I mean, the whole tetrarch and you know governors and how all those things shifted titles and people. And it's amazing that they're accurate. Is is it is obviously a tribute to the inspiration of God. But um, a lot of scholars are very interested in in how that how that took place. Letter F. Uh, the Bible was written during the eyewitness's life, and we talked about this earlier. I mean, it was. Uh, I mentioned this back in Easter. I always think that's a prominent part about the resurrection. I mean. They wrote about that Jesus rose again when people were alive that that were there, <laughs> and if it wasn't real, you don't lie. You don't lie about something when the witnesses are still there, right? You wait till they die and then you tell the story. If you're going to be good about it and get away with it, you wait till they're all dead and gone. 
they were right, and they're saying, like Paul would say in Romans, he was like, hey, go, you know, he appeared to 500 people, go talk to them. <laughs> they're up the street, I mean, just go ask them. They, they saw it. Um, and so it was, again, written during the time um, of the eyewitnesses. I mean, Acts 26, 26, these things were not done in the corner. I mean, they, they, everyone knew about this stuff, is what was happening. In the military, we've got a phrase that nothing ruins a good war story like an eyewitness. Like an eyewitness, yeah. You got the eyewitness right there. Yep. Letter uh, G. Church history affirms the Bible. I've got this all in your notes, so I can email you, but it's just a bunch of different, um, um, just how people in church history believe this stuff. How they, you know, when you had like those church councils, you know, the whole Council of Chalcedon and Nicaea and all those 300 to 400, 500 A.D., those big councils that, you know, arguing over the divinity of Christ or the Trinity and all that stuff. A lot of times people imagine those scenes as being like some big table and some, some guys are arguing about it in, you know, scholarly robes or something. If you go back, they were all pastors that were doing that. And they weren't all arguing, but they were all coming with, like, eyes gouged out. They were missing limbs because they were tortured for their faith. And they come to those tables. They weren't, you know dressed up in your know, Sunday best. I mean, they, they were tortured for it. So they were arguing, they were actually giving their life for what they were talking about. It's a very different way. Of, they, they, they very much affirmed um, they were willing to die for the scriptures. Uh, letter, letter H, uh, the content of the Bible is far too counterproductive to be legends. Um, again, just it just doesn't make any sense. Um, we talked about this before, too. I mean, why, why would the leaders of the early church movement made up the story of the crucifixion if it didn't really happen? Why would you say that, hey, our, our Savior was crucified on the cross? And everyone, all especially all the Jewish people, that was like, well, he was cursed then. Like, why, why, would, you, why would you make that up? You know, why would we say the first witness of the resurrection was a woman? You, know, you wouldn't do that because that, they had, she had no, no credibility in the court system, right? There's no argument for that. Why would you say that? Because that's what happened. <laughs> they, that's what happened. Again, too, too detailed to, um, to, be, to be that. Um, I, the literary form of the Bible is too, I think I did that. No, I did counterproductive, sorry. Literary form of the Bible is too detailed to be legend. Um, this is simply, uh, things like Peter catching the 153 fish on the shore, you know, and counting them all up, or, um, you think about Jesus writing in the, in the sand, or Jesus asleep on the boat, in the bottom of the boat, and they wake him up, and the details about all those things, you just didn't write back then. Art fiction, nonfiction today is radically different than it was in the first century. You can go read some of those, you know, Iliad and those other ones, and you realize it's very two-dimensional. Um, when it's when it's when it's nonfiction, I mean, it's I'm sorry, when it's fiction. It's actually very much, you know, it. The Bible's not written that way at all, um, as in terms of literary form. Uh, Jay, the Bible is a Bible that uh, is a book that reads us. Um, it just reads us. Right? It has a way of, of convicting. Uh, we call this you know, the eternal testimony of the Holy Spirit. As, uh, has a way of confirming even those very things. Um, I told you earlier about that you know, story with, with uh, um, Whitfield. I mean, it just has a way it is of itself reads us. It is powerful in and of itself. I'm going to move on from that. Doot, doot. Okay. This is um, also on the same point, by the way. Um, so the testimony of the, of the Spirit uh, is the work of the Spirit to give us new life, right? Gives us, the Spirit of God gives us regeneration. He opens our eyes to see its illumination uh, of the actual inspired Scripture, its inspiration. This is all what the Spirit is doing. 
in terms of, of how, how the Bible actually is going to be one that, that actually reads us, because that's what the Spirit of God is doing in that way. Uh, letter K, the Bible is written uh, over a 15-year span and yet consistent, right? This is the, the 40 authors, different professions, walks of life, locations, multiple continents, you know, Asia, Africa, Europe, all writing and still all very consistent over that period of time. And so we can trust it. Uh, letter L, the Bible is a book that is historically accurate. I mentioned this earlier, but just simply the, the contents of it. You can see uh, John Elder writing there about archaeology uh, and all those different different elements. Josephus was a, was a Jewish historian during New Testament times. You can go through all of those and find things like the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, by the way, those things were fantastic when they found them. I love... I love they, they found them, and their first goal when liberal scholars found them was like, finally, we get to disprove that the Bible exists, or it's accurate. And they found, they found a whole scroll of Isaiah in there, written a good 900 years prior to the earliest copies that we had. I mean, 900 years. And they went back and they compared the copy that we had that was around 700 or 800 A.D., and they found these copies were like two, 300 B.C. That's how old these copies were. The copy is from 200 B.C., and the earliest copies we have from like 700 A.D., so that 900 period of time, matched up exactly. The copies did, you know, and they were like, oh, like frustrated the whole process. So even the discovery, um, that's kind of what the cave that they got them in, uh, was, was a great find even just to kind of reinforce the idea um, of how it, how it um, that's the Isaiah scroll uh, part of it right there, um, just reaffirming the, the reliability of Scripture for us. Letter, uh, oops, nah, don't worry about that, I got it in your notes. Letter M, the Bible is a book that has changed history. Uh, we can go through all your different quotes I have there before you, and how, um, how the Word of God absolutely, um, uh, completely changed uh, people's lives. Actually have, I don't have it in your notes actually, but I have it in mine. The story I read to you earlier about, uh, it was Thorpe was the guy's name, part of the Hellfire Club with Whitfield, and how he was converted by it. Absolutely changed all of history in that way. Great Reformation, Wilberforce with the, um, the slave trade in England. All of that was because the Word of God was shaping and changing history. Reformation, obviously, with Luther. Uh, all of that changed. And it's important to remember, too, that we talk about the, um, the Bible um, changing history. Uh, it has changed that because you go through all the... Each of the New Testament writers, all the apostles, they, you know, they all just, they didn't just like die of old age. I mean, they were they were murdered. They were they they were crucified, dragged through the streets. They were hung up. I mean, they were um, all of them went through that, and they none of them recanted. Not a single one of them said, you know, I, I give up. I'm just kidding. You know, I mean, human nature says if you get pushed to that point of suffering, that we eventually will break. And no one broke. No one ever said I made it up. I mean, they all took it all the way to the grave with them. Uh, your last no, number there, number letter N, and then you just kind of look through those. Just the Bible contains prophecies that have been fulfilled. I kind of listed off the last part of your document a lot of different prophecies and where, when they were written, when they were fulfilled, and kind of lining all those things up for you. Just as something you can have for your uh, for references for you. So, um, so yeah, there we go. I made it. I know I gave you a lot there, but uh, see, I did it. I did it. Thank you. Um, any final uh, questions? For that, I just kind of wanted to give you a little bit of this. Was just kind of to go after 
just our conviction that if we're going to teach it and preach it, that we need to be convinced of it. Uh, know where, you know, next week we'll talk about where it came from and kind of uh, the copies that we have. We'll talk a little bit about translations. We'll talk about uh, some of those things. And then we'll get into kind of nitty-gritty. We'll get into the we call the, the science and the art of preaching and teaching. The science part being kind of the what does it mean and finding the meaning of it, outlining it, all of that stuff. And then the presentation is the art. Like how, how do we most effectively communicate it? in that way and so we'll kind of go through all of those all those means together all right what's that in the fourth class okay yeah well, i'm recording them so we'll have that for you yeah who's gone to germany for that time okay you guys okay in the fourth class oh okay well all right, guys, there'll be a few of us <laughs> for that. All right? That's the day I'm going to preach. I'll write that down. All right. That's right. In German. You need to do it in German, actually. Yeah, yeah. do it in German. All right? Any other questions? All right. All right, let me pray for us. God, thank you for our time. Thank you for uh, the word of God that we have, that we can trust it. Uh, it's been given to us, so Lord, we can, uh, we, we can seek to communicate it. Help us to be better communicators. Help us to present it rightly. Help us to present it accurately. Help us present it in a way that people can understand it. I pray by the time we're done with this class that we'd be, um, be better communicators of it. And, uh, Lord, that you would just help sharpen us um, in, our, in our craft as we begin to continue to learn uh, to do it better. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Yes, sir. All right. Thank you, Ben.